So uh, welcome to Safe Haven. If you don't know me, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, We are so grateful to have you. We are in Genesis, our ongoing study through the book of Genesis. Um, And so if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open it up to Genesis chapter 20. I was originally assigned four chapters this morning. Yeah. (laughs) Some of you are like, the bald guy took an hour on one passage last week, one chapter. (laughs) So I get get five hours this week. I'm just saying. All right, I'm just saying. Hey, but for real, last week was a grace. It was a hard text, and it was... It was incredible grace. So thank you for that, Troy. Um, And so to open this up, I just want to tell you a story. So when me and Heather first got married, um, we were in my parents' minivan for some odd reason. I don't really know why. We were going to the store maybe to get to Sam's Club, fill it up with stuff and come back home. I don't know. Anyways, we were in my parents' minivan and we were wheeling into our driveways in the middle of summer. Wildlife is out and about these days. Um, And so I get in and I see this slithery black thing going through the yard. And it was was easily the size of an anaconda. Um, But I had this opportunity um, in my mind, like my my testosterone starts raging. I'm like, this is not good. I'm going to do what Adam failed to do in the garden and take this thing out. And so... um, (laughs) So we will in, and I jump out of the car. Heather's still in the van, keep in mind. So she's still in the van. I'm like, don't get out. I got you. I'm going to take care of you. Uh, all a true story you can get with her after the, t- after the text, uh, the sermon today. But anyways, I get out. I'm going to kill this thing. I don't go for the hoe. I don't go for the shotgun. I run in and grab the 9 millimeter. Okay? And so, like, I'm not thinking, I'm not thinking about what I'm doing. I think I'm doing good things, and then it's just all a cluster in my brain. By the time I get back outside with the pistol, the snake is half on my concrete driveway and half on the grass. Well, I'm like, well, you can't shoot a, te- a snake in the tail and do any good, so I'll just get up real close to it and just start shooting it in the head. <laughs> and by close, I mean at least 10 feet. And so... I don't just shoot at this thing one time. I unload the entire clip into this snake. True story. And in this moment, I think I'm doing good. I kill the snake only to stop. The the dust settles and I hear my wife screaming in the van like, what is happening? And then I look at my parents' minivan and all down the side are bullet holes all down the side of their minivan that they had just gotten. I thank God that I was married and the Lord preserved my life. Because if I was not married, my dad, who was sitting right back there, would have killed me. And so I say that story to tell you this, that this text today is an emotional roller coaster. What Abraham thinks he's doing for good to bring about good things, he's really just causing a bunch of cluster. But God is good to him in preserving his covenant promises and preserving his life. And so the tale of two lives. Last week we looked at Lot, who was a man of deplorable depravity. If you remember back, um, it ended with Lot's daughters um, getting him plastered and then getting him getting them pregnant. They need their own episode of Maury. Um, But this week, we're getting back to Abraham, who was a great man of faith, though sometimes inconsistent faith. And so what I think we'll see over these these three chapters, I nixed a chapter, so we're going to just do 20 through 20, um, 20 through 22. And these three chapters is even though we're prone to botch things up royally, like I did with, with my parents' band, God is kind and unwavering in his covenant promises. So remember God's covenant promises to Abraham up to this point, okay? So he said he's going to give him a son. He's going to make him a father to a multitude of nations. He's going to give his offspring this land. The nations are ultimately going to be blessed through him, through his seed. And then he also tells him, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who dishonor you. 
So, I want to follow a theme this morning, and we're not going to have time to read all this, so I encourage you to go back and read the text in its fullness this afternoon. But we're going to follow this theme of God keeps His covenant promises despite. And the first things we're going to see is in chapter 20 is God keeps His covenant promises despite half-truths. So, God's been abundantly gracious towards Abraham up to this point, if you remember back. He's kept his covenant promises thus far. So, you would think Abraham would be ready to walk through hell or high water knowing that the Lord has his back, that God has his back. He could walk in unwavering, confident faith that the Lord would have him and he would keep him. But he's human. And at the end of the day, Humans left to our own devices will botch things up 10 out of 10 times. And so Abraham and his people are on the move again. He's traveling through this pagan land. And he ends up sojourning through this place called Gerar. I think I'm saying that right. We're going to roll with it. So Gerard. So this place was southwest of what would one day be Jerusalem on the coast, near the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And this is where we find Abraham in chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. It says this. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar, verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. It sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? And so, they're on the move. Abraham's worried for his life again in this pagan land over the beauty of his wife. And so, he says a half lie again. This is just my sister. Remember, that's sort of true. Like, she technically is his half-sister. But he wasn't saying that to just to say that. He was saying that to cover his tail. And so, sure enough, this pagan king sent for her and brought him to him. This repeated failure, the same sin he did in Egypt back in chapter 12. The same old knee-jerk reaction sin of Abraham has crept its head up again. And this morning, before we cast stones at Abraham, let's look at our own hearts. We're real prone to do this Ourselves. Each of us have old certain sins that easily entangle us, as Hebrews tells us, that cling so closely to us, right? We all have sins like that. And this was Abraham's knee-jerk vice. It, when he felt pressured, he trusted in himself and his ability to get himself out of a situation rather than trusting in God. Keep in mind, God's already preserved him this far. You would, <laughs> he's going to preserve him to the end. Remember the covenant promise. Abraham's already believed the divine promise back in chapter 15, verse 6, where it said it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to preserve you, Abraham. Does he have this son yet? No. It's a distrust in God. God's promise still stands. But when pushed a bit, Abraham decides he's going to help out God a little with a little lie. And this plays out for us like this in our day and time. God, I trust you, but I just want to make sure things work out right. You ever found yourself saying something like that? Lord, I just want to be proactive in this situation. I just want to be proactive. Be sure this goes the way you want it to be. And so, maybe it's fudging a tax record. Maybe it's stretching a story to fit your narrative. Maybe it's buying something or doing something to make yourself look a little better. Maybe it's embellishing a story to make you look like the victim. We've all been here, right? We've all been in this situation with half-truths. And self-trust by its very definition, what Abraham's doing, self-trust by its very definition is distrust in who? Distrust in God. By its very definition. And that can have no place in the believer's life. It should have no place in our life. Listen, believer, you need, just, you, need, you need to catch this. God loves you and likes you as you are in Christ. Period. Period. You don't have to puff up your resume for Him to delight in you. 
He's not impressed by your zip code. He's not impressed by what labels you have on your clothes. He's not impressed by your job title. For, like in our wedding vows, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, whether you're in the center of the social circle or on the outskirts, He delights over you, not because of you, because of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Period. You don't have to live in half lives. You don't have to do that, man. He delights in you because of His Son. You can breathe. The pressure is off. It's off. But nonetheless, we see God preserve His covenant in Abraham's fault. God made an unconditional, unilateral covenant with Abraham and His screw-ups could not repeal that covenant. And that's good news for us. In chapter and verse 3, God goes on to tell Abimelech, keep in mind, keep in mind His covenant promise, I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to do what? I'm going to curse those who dishonor you. And so he meets with old Abimelech in a dream in verse 3. Look at that. He says, And God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. That's a good way to wake somebody up right there, right? Like, I don't want the Lord coming to me in a dream saying, Hey, bro, I'm about to ax you. Like, that's not what I I want to wake up to. And so Abimelech, in the situation he runs through the whole story, is so similar to Pharaoh. Look, I didn't know. I was told it was his sister. I'm I'm innocent. I haven't done anything to her. Please, please spare me. Spare my people. Don't take us out. And then the Lord reminds this pagan king, by the way, it was my omniscience, my all-knowing, it was my omnipotence, my all-powerfulness, pagan, that kept you from sinning, that kept you from getting wiped out. It's my grace towards you. Do you see the grace in this passage? Even to a pagan, a common grace. And it goes on in verse 9, Abimelech confronts Abraham. What have you done to us? You, you've brought on me in my kingdom a great sin. Why do you do this? This, is, this mirrors uh, chapter 12, verse 10. It's the same thing Pharaoh says to Abraham. You've repeated the same thing. And then we see Abraham's lame response. Well, I thought there was no fear of God at all here. And I thought that I would die. I, y'all are a bunch of pagans. And I thought you would just kill me if I didn't lie to you. This is, not a, this is not a fruitful way to do evangelism. <laughs> you know, this, is not, this is not what it looks like to live missionally, in case you didn't know that. Okay? This is not how we treat unbelievers. Okay? And so, in this moment, it's, it's just a cluster. It's just an absolute cluster. And if Abraham would have exhibited a proper fear of God, he would have never lied in the first place. Because he knows that his God is powerful enough to sustain him. And so, as Kent Hughes says, and this is what I want you to walk away with this. Kent Hughes says, it is entirely possible for the righteous, through their sins, to nullify their witness to the world permanently, as we saw last week with Lot, or temporarily, as did Abraham in this moment. But God preserves them nonetheless. And as God closed the wombs, we see at the end of chapter 20, He closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech out of covenant with Abraham over Sarah. He reopens their wombs, which leads into uh, number two. God keeps His covenant promises despite our inabilities. So that wraps up chapter 20 and we jump into chapter 21. And so a year has passed since chapter 18 where God has appeared to Abraham and Sarah and said, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to birth a son through you. And remember, if you remember back in chapter 18, Abraham laughed in this excited belief like, oh my goodness, I'm going to get a seed. I'm so excited. I'm going to get a son. And then his wife laughed in mockery, right? I'm, not, I'm 90 years old. This body ain't bearing no baby. Okay, it ain't going to happen. She's laughing in disbelief. And if you recall, what does the Lord do? He goes and rebukes Abraham over his wife. Why is she laughing at me, Abraham? Is anything too hard for me? And this is a fulfillment of that promise. 
And so as God closed the wombs out of the covenant in the chapter before, now he opens Sarah's wombs. Let me invert chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. Or no, I'm sorry, 21, 1 through 3. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son Isaac, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him. Isaac. And so a year has passed, keep in mind, that this baby has gotten here, and this pregnancy is certainly one of the most celebrated pregnancies in all of pregnancies, okay? Pregnant at 90 years old with baby number one. Ladies, how does that sound? Not awesome, right? Yeah, (laughs) not awesome. Um, And so pregnant with baby number one. So everybody in Abraham's little tent village is talking about this. Everybody's talking about it. He, she is the talk of the town. This baby is the talk of the town. And why is this? Because God is carrying out His covenant promise. These promises are unfolding before their very eyes. The Lord did as He said He would do. Why? Because He's the only one that could make a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman spit out a baby. Period. And so, it's the total work of the Lord. Look at the language. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said. The Lord did as He had promised. And she conceived and bore Abraham a son at the time which God had spoken to them. Church, God is true to His Word. He's true to His Word, man. He just is. You can bank on it. You can bank on everything in this book. And that includes the spiritual blessings in Christ, the rich graces that we see in the New Testament, and also those hard truths of Genesis 19 that we saw last week. It applies to both. And so, Jesus Himself says this, For truly I say to you, in Matthew 5.18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. And this comes from Christ, who is the fulfillment and grand amen to all of Scripture. And so we are meant to live in deepest trust of all of God's Word by help, by divine help of the Spirit. And God calls us to be obedient, whether it be in our finances, our health, our singleness, our marriage, our knowledge, because we're prone in our inability to be like, God, I just I don't think I know enough. I, I, I don't know enough to be used by you. I, I, I'm, my life's not in order to be used by you. God will use His people to carry out His purposes despite our inabilities. And I hope you see that in this text. You see it all throughout Scripture. You see it in Moses. He goes to the Lord. Hey, Moses, I want, or Moses, the Lord comes to Moses rather. Hey, I want you to go into this, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. You're going to lead these people out of captivity, Moses. But, 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 but Lord, I got this stutter. I, I, can't, I can't be used. I can't, I, can't, I can't do this. And then the Lord tells Moses, I will put the words in your mouth. Go and do. Same with Paul. We see it in the New Testament. Killing Christians, murdering Christians, assaulting the church. Lord, how can I be used? The apost- My credibility is garbage. Pins 13 letters of this book. The greatest church planner who has ever lived other than Jesus Christ. Paul. And we see this in Abraham's immediate obedience to name and circumcise his child. Our inability is no hands for the fingertips of God and his covenant promises. And so, then God given, tells him to give Isaac the name of laughter. And if you recall the rich irony in this passage, remember Abraham laughed out of excitement and probably a little bit of disbelief because he was old too. And then you see Sarah laughing out of utter disbelief, like this body ain't carrying a baby. And then the baby finally gets here and it's like God's just kind of sitting there. You know, like, guess who gets the last laugh now? Suckers. You know, name that boy Isaac. And so... It's, just, it's this joyous moment that we've all been waiting for. And then Sarah replies in verse 6, God has granted laughter to me. What a grace. Covenant promises. 
Who would have thought a 90-year-old woman would nurse a baby? Not me. And they laughed together and they held little laughter in their arms and God kept his word. The true heir of the Abrahamic covenant was born. Keep in mind, there was another child who had been born out of their own ability, which we'll get to in just a second. But heaven was smiling. The inability of man was no challenge for God. But this joyous moment would soon be followed by the heartache of the fruit of man's ability. Look with me in verse 8. So with the arrival of the child of promise came division from the son of flesh, Ishmael. So don't forget Abraham and Sarah took the covenant promise back in chapter 16 into their own hands and tried to produce this blessing, this covenant blessing, through their own abilities. In chapter 16 with Hagar. And this is even more evidence what's about to play out as to what it looks like when we try to earn God's smile through our own efforts. Look in verse 8 with me. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not... Be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So we know at least three years has passed since Isaac's birth. So he's at the age of weaning in in the ancient Middle Eastern cultures that would have been around three years of age. So Isaac's around three years and that would put um, Ishmael being around a teenage years like 15 to 16-ish. And so... Sarah sees Ishmael laughing at her son who's being weaned, and she gets utterly triggered. This seems a little bit like, hey, lady, you need to take a chill pill. Like, she's laughing. Like, what's the deal? But we get a little bit of context. Paul gives us a bit of context as to what this laughter is in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians 4.29, Paul says this, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that time, he, referring to this, He who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, Isaac. So also it is now. This wasn't a playful laugh. And if your your footnote is like mine in my Bible, it says um, it could be possibly laughing means mockery. And so this wasn't a playful laugh. It was one of mockery. So maybe Ishmael is jealous And he's trying to establish himself as the true heir of Abraham. Remember, he's been there for 15 years. Like, why is dad so captivated by this new baby? Hello, here I am. Your son, you brought into the world. What's your problem? Ishmael felt jealousy from being displaced. Maybe, and and, and that's the thing about envy. That's the thing that happens in us about envy. Envy always elevates ourselves at the expense of someone else. And in this case, it was Isaac's expense. And Ishmael's laughter didn't necessarily suggest violence, but Sarah doesn't like the possible trajectory of where this mockery could go. And so she tells Abraham to expel Hagar and Ishmael from the camp, from the camp, from the family. Send them out. And think... I think this is God working through Sarah to protect the promised seed. Keep in mind, God is omniscient. God knows all things. Nothing happens outside of Him knowing it. And so in some form or fashion, He sees this to be a good thing. And we can see all through the Old Testament where issues rise up against brothers. Right? Where have we already seen that? Cain and Abel, right? Right? Jealousy led to murder. We're going to see it again in Jacob and Esau over a birthright. We're going to see it play out again with Joseph and his brothers. And so maybe in this moment, this is the way of God's way of preserving the promised seed. And so, but I want you to keep in mind, this is all the fruit of Abraham and Sarah's doings. Ishmael didn't ask for this. But it's the fruit of Abraham. And this goes to show us in a very real way that our sin 
though we might not see it now, has fruit and consequences that might pop up its head way down the road. Our sin has consequences. So this caused great distress for Abraham. Ishmael's his son, has been the recipient of his fatherly affection for the last 15-ish, 16-ish years at this point. Can you imagine as a dad, if you're a dad in this room, or even a mom, how painful that would be? How painful that would be, man. And so, in verses 12 and 13, God comforts Abraham with both truth and grace. Look at this. But God came to Abraham and he said, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So we see both truth and grace here. Here's the truth statements. Hard truth, number one. Abraham, don't be displeased by the fruit of your actions. Don't be displeased, man. You brought this about. You you produced this. Don't be displeased by the fruit of your actions by sleeping with the slave woman and producing this child of the flesh. Second truth. You need to listen to the voice of your wife. This is fascinating. This is the first time that we see in Scripture where this has been a good thing. Remember back in the garden, what was Adam's fundamental flaw? He listened to the voice of his wife rather than the voice of the Lord. Chapter 16, Ishmael happens. The fundamental, first fundamental flaw of Abraham. Abraham, you listen to the voice of your wife and not the voice of the Lord. But here, Abraham, listen to the voice of your wife. Fascinating. So, in some form or fashion, this is what the Lord wants. He sees this as good. And so, and then number three, hey, Abraham, remember the covenant. This covenant is with Isaac, not Ishmael. Truth number three. That's a hard truth. It's a hard truth, man. And then the grace. But in grace... I will still make a nation of Ishmael because he is your offspring. (laughs) He could have just wiped him out, but he still offers grace in this moment. So Abraham gets up the next morning and in obedience, do you see how Abraham's growing in his faith? Wakes up the next morning, he sends them out, sends them away with food and water into the wilderness. And God still gives, don't miss this, still gives Hagar and Ishmael common grace in promising to preserve the life of Ishmael and give him a royal line that we've seen in verse 20. Now we know that line leads to the, the Islam because the, the Islam is built on the shoulders of Ishmael. And so it's not necessarily a glorious line by any means, but it's still a line nonetheless. And then in And we already know the future of Ishmael because the angel of the Lord has already appeared to Hagar back in chapter 16 and said this about him. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, Hagar, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. I don't want that said about my kids. Like, that's that's not a positive thing. And what I want you to see here, this is fascinating. All these similarities between Isaac and Ishmael. Follow with me. Both are children of Abraham. Both will multiply offspring. Both's fruitfulness will lead to royal descendants. Both will be both were circumcised. Both are associated with laughter. Both are promised to be made into a great nation. Both are taken a wife for. All these similarities are shocking. But there's a defining difference. Isaac was a child born uh, born of the Spirit, and Isaac was a child born of the flesh. And there are repercussions of that. Paul gets into it in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Paul says this, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Don't miss this. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
And some of you, that might be a hard pill to swallow. But it's in God's word. And so this goes to show us that it is entirely possible to look the part and not be a part of the family. That's terrifying. Us in 2022, it is completely possible to look apart, look a part of the family in this room. You come, you gather, you sing the songs, you go on the trips, you, you hear the sermons, you, you go to the CG, and you not be born of the Spirit. If you want the covenant benefits, you must be born of the Spirit. It does not matter the fleshly similarities. But nonetheless, God was keeping His covenant promises despite the self-created mess of Abraham and Sarah and was working all these things together for their ultimate good and His ultimate glory. That's what Paul's getting at in Romans 9. What we meant for evil, God means it for good. God does not waste moments, safe haven. He doesn't waste a moment. He just don't. Each hiccup and failure is used by him to mature us in faith, which leads to number four. God keeps his covenant promises despite pagan relationships. Chapters 21, verses 22 through 24. So Abraham has another run-in with this Philistine pagan king, Abimelech, that God told him in a dream is going to take him out, but God preserved him. That guy, same guy. So he has a run-in with him. Um, and where Abraham was in his disgrace the last time he ran into him, here we see him as respected by Abimelech. This is fascinating as well. In verse 22, look at what he says to Abraham. God is with you in all that you do. We see this respect for Abraham, mainly more so respect for the God of Abraham. And Abraham's grown tremendously in his faith. In this text, he makes this non-aggression pact with this king Abimelech. So no longer is Abraham this quiet, timid dude who's gonna has a spine of a, a, a twizzler that won't take a stand on anything. But we see him as a man who has confidence in his God, who takes a stand when the pressure is hot. And he has confidence in his Lord, and sustaining him in this moment. And so, Abraham speaks up. Look in verse 25. There's this disagreement over this well. When Abraham reproved Abimelech, when, another way of saying that, when Abraham got in Abimelech's face about this well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard about it until... Today And so we see Abraham has this confidence in his God. He has this spine about himself. He confronts this pagan king. He doesn't feel a need to stretch a truth. But he's confident. Nonetheless, this covenant in this moment of him interacting with this pagan king. He was, he was once a coward, but now he's, he's growing into this man of faith, the strong faith where Abimelech acknowledged the well to be Abraham's was a moment where proclaiming that Abraham was growing in his faith to the Lord. And so this covenant was to keep peace between these two parties going forward. And so through all these grinding trials, this is what I want you to see. Through all these grinding trials that has happened through Abraham, the Lord has used these grinding moments in his life to polish his soul. To polish him to be into this man of faith. And that's how faith grows us. We grow through refining fires of suffering and difficulty. And the Lord uses the, sor- the celebrations, the sorrows, the screw-ups, and everything in between to mold us. And we're made faithful men and women of God through the daily repeated mercies and graces of the Lord. That's how it plays out in our everyday rhythms. And that's what led Abraham to plant a Timorash tree at this well and to call upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. That is huge. 
Abraham is referring to God's eternal relationship in this covenant. He's thinking back, namely to Isaac's birth. Lord, I remember the coward that I've been, but I see that you've been faithful in your covenant promises to me, despite me. And so at this moment, I'm going to plant this well and trust that you are the everlasting God that will sustain me to the end. And all your covenant promises. That's a big deal for him. And it's going to be a big deal as as to what's coming forward. And so this view of God will inform all of Abraham's dealings from here on out. There's been grace in the birth of Isaac. There's been grace in the departure of Ishmael. There's been grace in this treaty with this pagan king. And there will be grace in this final test of his faith. Chapter 22. God keeps his covenant promises despite our human reason. And finally, we get to God's covenant promises despite our human reason. This is a heavy, heavy chapter. And so life seems to be going great for Abraham's family. Isaac is growing up. At this time, um, Isaac is a teenager. Um, Teenage years, about the same age as when uh, Ishmael was, when he was expelled from the camp. He's growing even deeper in his faith, but God has one final test for him. Go ahead and throw that picture up for me. I just want to kind of paint the picture of what's going on. And so, if y'all don't know who this little, perfect, beautiful angel is, um, it is my daughter. And by the way, she is not perfect and or angelic at all times. So, I'm just being honest. I'm just being real. Um, and so, but man, she is such a sweet, gracious joy for our family. And so, for some of you, you know the story to get this child. So me and Heather walked through three and a half years um, of infertility and we were told that we weren't going to have kids and we had a community. Many of you were praying over us. You wept with us. You cried with us. You begged the Lord with us to have this child and completely unexpectedly, despite what doctors said, we were halfway through the adoption process and Heather got pregnant. And this this little joy has been such a sweet blessing to our family. But what if the Lord came to me and he said, hey Tyler, I want you to take this child and I want you to take her up on a mountain. I want you to slit her throat. I want you to dismember her and I want you to set her ablaze on this altar. That's what's going on in this passage. That's what a burnt offering looks like in ancient Middle Eastern culture. Do you feel the weight of this text? This is what's going on here. And so, at this moment, we're all like, what in the world? Like, (laughs) this is in the Bible? If you're an unbeliever in this room, you're like, this doesn't even make any sense at all. Like he's told him he's going to give him this promised child and now he's telling him to go cut its throat and dismember it and set it afire. What in the heck? What is going on? And nonetheless, that's what the Lord calls Abraham to do. Look with me in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 22. We're just going to go through this. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. You've loved him for 15 years so far. And go up to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood of the burnt offering and arose and went to the place at which God had told him. So God tells Abraham to sacrifice the son that he's given him. And keep in mind Abraham's background. Remember, we've already seen that God brought him out of Ur. Remember what was going on in Ur? They were worshiping stars and doing what? Sacrificing people. It's like, Lord, what are you, why are you taking me back to that? What are you doing? So this is interesting. And this last test of Abraham mirrors his first test. Remember, his first test said, hey, I'm going to take you into a land that I will show you of covenant promises. And now he's telling Abraham, hey, Abraham, go and sacrifice your child, this covenant promise, 
on this mountain of which I'm going to show you. It's just interesting, this contrast is happening. And I'm sure this left Abraham utterly bewildered like it would if any other human in this room. And so I've gone, I've gone through all this just to lead up to this moment, telling me you want me to kill him? This goes beyond all human reason. It doesn't make sense. And so keep in mind, Abraham didn't have the Torah yet. This hasn't been written yet. He didn't have, a, he didn't have writings to inform his doctrine or his worldview. He's going on the basis of God's Word. He's stepping out in faith on what God tells him to do. And so he rose and he went. And in verse 5, And Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with this donkey, and I and the boy will go over there. And look at this language. And worship and come again to you. For Abraham, walking out radical faith was worship. It's worship. It's worship. And do you see the language? He's confident of resurrection. Lord, I don't know what you're going to do in this moment, but I know that you're, you've, you've been faithful despite me. You've given me this promised child, and in some form or fashion, you're going to bring him back. Because the nations will be blessed through this seed. This is the seed of promise. What are you going to do? So he assumes resurrection. This faith is playing out. And it's also interesting to note, look at verses 6 through 9. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took it in his hand. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went, both went up together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. And when he came to that place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar atop the wood. And Abraham reached out, reached for his knife and out of his hand, he took the knife to slaughter his son. And so in this moment, I want you to notice Isaac following his father in this obedience. He's walking in obedience with his father. Keep in mind, Isaac is way younger. He's way faster and he's way stronger than his hundred-year-old pops. Okay, He's a teenager. He could probably have taken the dude if he wanted to. But he doesn't. He's bound. He lays there. He's following in his father's obedience. Right as Abraham was about to slit the throat of his son, this angel of the Lord stopped him. And he says this, look, and Abraham reached for the knife, took to slaughter his son, but this angel of the Lord called on him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Don't miss that language of this angel. That's not ordinary language for any ordinary angel. You have not withheld your son from me. This is rich. This is rich, man. And then Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it as a burnt offering instead of substitutionary language there of his son. And so Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. And as, he, and as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And this angel speaks again. And he said, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, from heaven, saying... I lost my spot. There he is. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, listen to this, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. I am 99.99% convinced this is a pre-incarnate Christ. Looking down the corridor of time. (laughs) This is good. Abraham, this isn't the son. There's a son to come. There's a son to come, not this one. 
God provided Abraham a ram for this sacrifice and he offered it instead of his son. Why did God spare Isaac? Because the blood of this son could not and did not have the power to take away sin. And so, interesting thing about this Mount Moriah. We go on to learn in the rest of the Old Testament that this Mount Moriah will be talked about again in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. And it's here that we learn that Solomon will build the temple on this mountain. The temple will be built on this Mount Moriah where Isaac was to be given up for a sacrifice. And the words that we see in this text, in Genesis 22, these three words, burnt offering, appear, and ram, occur together only in Leviticus chapter 8, 9, and chapter 16 at the Day of Atonement. And it's at the temple that the people, if you remember back, the Israelites would flood into the temple and they would offer sacrifices day in and day out as substitute for their sins, for their unkept commitments, for their broken covenants, for their inconsistencies, their nastiness. However, There was a true and better sacrifice, a true and better seed that was to come. One who would come and to give his life as a ransom for many. One who would be the ultimate propitiatory wrath-based sacrifice for God's people. And on this same place, a thousand years later. So keep in mind, we have Abraham. A thousand years later on this place, the temple is built. A thousand years later. 2,000 years, we have Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. It's the night before Passover. And I'm sure there was sounds of animals being slaughtered at the temple in the background. And then he gathers with his disciples in this upper room in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. And he gave a whole new meaning to the Passover meal. He takes the elements and he says, this is my body, this bread that's going to be broken for you. This is my blood that's going to be poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And these disciples, I'm sure they're like, what is he talking about? I have no paradigm for this. Remember Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 tells us, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. However... Jesus was the sinless lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. He was the only one who could foot the bill that Isaac could not and that animals could not foot the bill for. And so the next day, the next day after that Passover meal, Jesus would be led up a similar mountain outside of Jerusalem. And he would be led up in communion with his father to be crucified by the men whom he came to seek and to save. And like Isaac, he would bear the wood of his cross on his back after being beaten beyond resemblance in the the square and being mocked and spit upon by the men who he came to seek and save. And like like, uh, Isaac, he would go in communion with his father and he wouldn't put up a fight like Isaiah 53 verse 7 tells us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. But as he went in communion with his father, verse Isaiah 53 verse 10, yet it was the will of the father to crush the son. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And this duality, as Hebrews tells us, it was for the joy before him, he endured the cross. And Jesus tells us in uh, John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me. I gladly and willingly lay it down for my people. So Jesus was confident in his father's work and Jesus answered, Jesus answered the, uh, the, the Pharisees back when He was cleansing out the temple. He was also confident in the resurrection, if you recall, in John chapter 2. He says, you destroy this temple, and guess what? I'll raise this bad boy up in three days. He wasn't talking about bricks and mortar people. He was talking about His body. And so He's confident in His Father's resurrection power. And so, But the, the moment comes where Jesus gets to the top of the mountain. 
the most vulnerable moment. He can feel the weight of what is to come, the propitiatory, the appeasing wrath of the Father that has to be born to take away the sins of the world. And he gets to the top of the mountain in the most most vulnerable moment. He feels the weight and there's no ram in the thicket. There's no ram. There's no ram. Because his blood was pure. His blood was sinless. And His blood could take away the sins of the world. So at this moment, this communal moment when that Isaac was experienced with his father when he was vulnerable, Jesus on the cross did not get to experience it because the father had to turn his back on the son as he bore our nastiness. All of our, when we try to... When we don't believe God in our half-truths and our inabilities, when we try to fix it in our abilities through making pagan relationships and goes beyond all human reason, God remains faithful to us and He pours it out on His Son on the cross. As First John tells us, He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. He takes it and we receive His righteousness. In Christ, the wrath aimed for us is swallowed up in the cross of Christ. And Abraham called Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. How fitting. How fitting, man. The Lord will provide. Little did he know what kind of provision would be coming through the true and better promised seed of Jesus Christ. So Ben, you can come on back up. So believer, what what does text mean for us? Man, I hope, if anything, it will cause you to breathe a little bit easier. This patriarch was full of screw-ups, man. Full of screw-ups. Full of... Just a, it's just a mess. And if anything, I hope that you don't look at this family and say, Oh man, we could, we could do a lot of things like this family. I would hope that you would walk away looking at this family and say, Man, we've got a really good God. Keeps his covenant promises despite screw-ups. So believer, rest in Christ. An unbeliever. The Lord has provided. He's provided. He's provided. You don't have to try to clean yourself up. You don't have to try to fix yourself. There's nothing you can do. There's, you, you just can't. You just can't do it. You can't do it. And if you try, you'll screw it up. Rest in Christ today. Today could be the day of salvation. We've already seen the Lord is faithful to seek and save and to make what was once broken beautiful through His Son. Today could be the day of salvation. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, man, thank You for this text. It was a lot. It's a lot to, to chew through, to think through. Lord, I... I hope it made some sense, Lord. And I pray that whatever didn't make sense, that whatever didn't glorify you would go in one ear and out the other. But Lord, what is of you? What exalts your son? What makes much of you and your glory? I pray that it will sink deep into our hearts, that it would transform our minds, and that we would live a life of great faith and worship in the one who pursues us and keeps us despite us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.